Well, how's everybody doing? Good. My name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for being here. Uh, hello as well to those of you watching in Issaquah, Duval, and online. Uh, if you want to pull the note sheet out of your program, we're going to jump right in. How many of you at any point in your life have ever had a friend who could talk you into doing stupid things? How many of you married that friend? Okay. Now, now if both of you are raising your hand right now, there, there may be a problem. Uh, unfortunately, that is a topic for a different weekend. Uh, I had a, a roommate in college named Sean Gray. I was a freshman uh, at Northwest University, a small Christian university over in, in Kirkland, and I was living in the dorms at, at the time. It was a sunny afternoon, and Sean came to me and he said, Shane, why don't we climb on top of the lounge, uh, the roof of the lounge over the, the guy's dormitory, and throw water balloons at kids as they leave? I said, that's a great idea. Obviously, not a lot of excitement going on at the Christian University. And, and so uh, the problem is we couldn't find any water balloons. We did, however, find a single party balloon that we filled up to the size of a bowling ball. And so we get this, this bowling ball water balloon, and we climb up on top of the roof, and I'm standing there on the ledge uh, waiting. And finally, I hear the door open, and, and I see this girl comes out, and then she, she walks, and she stops right underneath me. And I can see, because I can see her shadow on the wall. And I'm wondering why she's stopped, until I realize that, well, I can see her shadow on the wall, she can also see my shadow on the wall, and my shadow is a figure on the roof like this. <laughs> And so she deliberates for a moment and then finally decides that her best course of action is just to run. And so she starts running. I take this bowling ball water balloon and I just throw it at her. Don't judge me. She's running, water balloon's going. It smacks her directly in the back, knocks her down and rolls away unpopped. <laughs> now you can judge me. And uh, so, so, so she, she gets up, and, and once again, small Christian university, and so I don't recognize her. And I say, uh, who are you? She says, I don't go here. I'm a senior in high school. I'm just visiting the campus. <laughs> so, so, so my roommate, Sean, with the, the tact that only a 20-year-old male can muster, leans over and he says, can you throw us back up our water balloon? Now, instead of walking away, true story, she picks up this water balloon, tries to throw it to us. It sinks into her nails and pops all over her. She walks away embarrassed, and I've been paying for her counseling sessions ever since. No, she could have just walked away, and she would have been okay. Now, how often in our lives, in our attempt to make things better, do we end up making things worse? How often have you said that to yourself? If I would have only walked away from that conversation, from that situation, from that relationship, from that opportunity. You see, we're in this series called Do Something Great. And often when we think of doing something great, we associate it with, with feeling great, with being in a great moment, with being in a good mood. When, when we're at our best and everything lines up, we can do something great. But what happens when we're not at our best? What happens when we're at our worst? What happens when, when we don't feel good? What happens when, when we're wounded? What happens when things don't go how we expected? It's kind of like this uh, advertisement for a hamburger that I saw. Now, I'm not going to tell you where this is from. I had our team blur out the logo to protect the identity 
of the company. <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say, but this is what you expected, and then this is what you got. And, and that one is not even trying, right? How often in life do we get wounded? And, and, and sometimes it's, it's superficial, but, but sometimes some of us have experienced wounds that are, that are deep and pervasive. But what happens when the person that hurt you is standing in front of you? What happens when the pain on the inside is screaming to come out? What happens when you have the opportunity to get even, to settle the score, to, to pay them back? How do you do something great when you've been wronged? Here's the first feeling on your note sheet. Sometimes it's what you don't do that makes the greatest impact. B.B. King, a famous blues guitarist who many of you may know passed away uh, this last week, was interviewed one time, and he was asked to share his opinion on a few other guitar players. The guys in question were neoclassical shredders. They played lots and lots of notes really, really fast. The blues legend made a funny face, thought for a second, and then admitted, I'm not a big fan of that style. When it comes to guitar solos, I'm a minimalist. I think the notes you don't play are the really important ones. That way, the ones you do play really count. This is true in, in so many areas of our lives, isn't it? Often it's the notes we don't play that make the biggest impact. It's the, the angry words that you don't speak, the mild compromises that you don't make. It, it's the conversation that you played in your head where you knew what you were going to say and what they were going to say and how you were going to stick it to them, and, and then in the moment, you hold back. It's the letter that you don't write, the email that you don't send, the justice that you don't pursue. Sometimes it's what you don't do that makes the greatest impact. Now, it's not about being passive. I, I, I know some people, and, and, and they're just passive, and honestly, I don't really get that. But, but there's some of us who, who we just have to do something. And sometimes just doing something is the worst something that we can do. And I've found that it's when, it's when everything inside of me wants to settle the score and, and get even and prove my point and let them know. And, and it's messy and it's difficult and sometimes our feelings can lie to us. There's something inside of us that says, if I can just hurt them like they've hurt me, then the pain that I feel will be dulled. And I hate the part of me that finds satisfaction in the suffering of others that says for me to win, you have to lose. But could there be a better way? I want to look at a unique account of David from the book of 1 Samuel. David is about to experience an interesting opportunity. David has been chosen and anointed as the next king of Israel. Saul is the current king of Israel and also David's father-in-law. And Saul has become jealous of David because David has experienced some military success and, and he's garnered the love of the people. And, and, and so Saul's jealous and really it's more about the, the failures and insecurities that, that Saul's experiencing on the inside than, than it has to do with what David's done. But, but Saul decides that he's gonna pursue David and try to kill him. And so David's on the run. David's hiding he, with Saul pursuing him relentlessly. We pick up the story in 1 Samuel 24 verse two. Here's what it says. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. 
David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give, you, give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now there's a, a little bit of an awkward moment happening here. David and his men are hiding in a cave and, and Saul and his men show up. And all of a sudden, Saul realizes that the big gulp that he had gotten along the way is about to make a guest appearance. And so he needs to go and relieve himself. Now I know what you're thinking. Number one or number two? I don't know. But here's what I do know. If David had enough time to creep up on Saul unnoticed and cut off a corner of, I'm just saying, you can do the math yourself. Verse five. Afterwards, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. David has been, been deeply wronged by Saul. David really, for the most part, had done everything right. He had honored Saul, he had helped Saul, he had protected Saul, and yet it didn't matter. David had been separated from his family because of what Saul had did. He's in hiding, he's scared, his future is uncertain. And then finally, David's moment has arrived. Now this is like a scene out of a movie, right? Saul walks into this cave, and then David walks out of the cave with Saul's head, and everyone cheers, and David is the next king. It's the perfect opportunity for revenge. No, not revenge, justice, right? It's revenge when someone else does it, but it's justice and vindication when, when it's our turn, isn't it? And, and so all the men that are, that are hiding with David, they're, they're encouraging him. This is your moment. This is your time. Saul has done so much to hurt you. and hurt. This is an opportunity from God. You need to seize this. This is an opportunity for you to do something great. And so David creeps up to Saul with a dagger in his hand. And then he hesitates. And I think for a second, David has an internal dialogue. Is this expected of me? Yes. Does he deserve it? Yes. Am I justified? Yes. But are those the best questions that I could be asking in this moment? Maybe this isn't an opportunity for me to do something great. Maybe this is an opportunity for me to be someone great. Maybe there's better questions that I could be asking. Maybe a better question would be, what will this do to my faith? And do I want this to be part of my story? You see, David could have been known as the king who killed Saul. David could have been known as the king who got revenge. David could have been known as the king who seized a great opportunity. But that is not what David's remembered for. Throughout scripture, again and again, David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. What will this do to my faith? 
Do I want this to be part of my story? You see, the question that you ask will determine the course that you take. And sometimes the best thing that you can do is, is, is pass on an opportunity that's in front of you. Uh, a few months ago, my uh, biological dad, my, my parents were divorced when I was young. Uh, my dad wasn't a, a very good guy, and, and so I haven't, haven't seen him since I was very little. And a few months ago, uh, my biological dad, his brother, uh, my uncle, who, who I, I don't know as well, uh, contacted me on Facebook. And he said, he said, hey, Shane, and he asked how I was doing, and, and he asked if there was anything that I wanted him to tell my dad. And in that moment, I thought, yeah, you can tell him how lousy of a father he was. And, 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 and I wanted to tell him uh, about how much he missed out on and how much I missed out on. I wanted to tell him about all the insecurities that I had to deal with growing up. I wanted to tell him about the fearful prayers that I've prayed, that I'll be a good dad, even though I'm not sure that I know how. I wanted to hurt him like he had hurt me. But then I stopped. And I thought, is, is this who I want to be? Will it help? It may help me to feel better, but I don't think it'll help me to be better. And so I simply replied, I said, I'm doing well. I have a beautiful wife and an amazing son. You can tell him that I'm doing well. What will this do to my faith? Do I want this to be part of my story? David de decides not to kill Saul. Now, hopefully you're not deliberating murder this weekend. If you are, don't do it. Just, just wanted to throw that out there. But David said this. He said, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. And so Saul leaves the cave. What happened in that moment? First of all, in that moment, David provided an example of loyalty. David felt guilty for, for even the small act of disloyalty that he did, for, for the disrespect, for the disobedience that he portrayed. The men that would one day serve David as king were in that cave with David watching him. And in that moment, David was, was raising the bar for what it meant to be loyal. People are watching you more than you realize sometimes. David also set a standard of grace. It, it, it's funny, even to this day, Saul is mostly known as a, a precursor to the story of David and a cautionary tale of what not to do. How was David able to do this act of grace? Now, I know there are, there are a lot of complexities involved, but, but earlier in his life, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, it's not in your notes, but David was younger, and he was visiting his brothers on the battle line, and he begins to ask questions about what's going on. And one of his brothers uh, calls him out, and he accuses him of having wrong motives for, for being there, and, 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 and he, he, he just calls him out in front of people. He makes fun of him, and, and it's embarrassing for David in that moment. And David, instead of uh, fighting back and instead of uh, defending himself, really, it says that, that David walked away to someone else. David walked away. Often it's, it's the decisions that we make when it seems like it doesn't really matter that set the stage for the decisions that we will make when everything's on the line. David set a standard of grace. And really, David would never have known how deeply he was going to need grace for the people that he had hurt 
in the future. David also gave his enemy an opportunity to change. Sometimes the difficult thing can be that we don't really want them to change because then it's a lot harder for us to hate them. David gave Saul another chance. Who in your life where where, where they don't deserve it, and, and it's not about enabling or being a doormat, but maybe there's someone in your life this weekend that God would say, you need to give them another chance. You'd say, Shane, that's a, that's a great story, but, but I don't live in Bible times. I don't live in a cave. I live in the modern world with all of the complexities I- involved. And, and so what I want to do, I want to turn, and I want to look at a portion of Scripture that deals with, with some of the unique challenges that we face each day. In, in the book of Romans, chapter 12, the Apostle Paul talks to us about the upside of resisting payback. And... Uh, Uh, I want to look at what happens when I choose not to get revenge. The first thing is this. Number one, I don't make my life easier, but I do make my world better. When I choose, instead of getting even, giving grace, I don't always make my life easier, but I do make my world better. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. What happens when, when instead of uh, repaying evil for evil, we repay evil for good? There, there's a ripple effect. where our, There's an effect that goes beyond our immediate action or inaction. It's like the, the old movie, Pay It Forward. Where somebody does something nice for three people, and then they do something nice for three other people, and then so on and so on. There's a a ripple effect. It's like when you're in line at Starbucks, and the car in in front of you pays for your drinks, and then you pay for the drinks for the car behind you until a stingy person comes along and ruins the whole thing. There's a ripple effect. As an example of of this, of of doing good, uh, I put a $100 bill under one of your seats. Uh, Go ahead and take it. As an opportunity for for generosity, I put a $100 bill under one of your seats. Go ahead and take it. At at all the campuses, there is one $100 bill. It's my AT&T bill, and so thank you so much for taking care of that for me. I really, really appreciate it. There's a ripple effect. Where where I don't perpetuate hurt, where where I minimize collateral damage, where where I resist the urge to, to demonize those around me, where, where it's not always easy or convenient and it rarely comes natural, but it always makes a difference. I also, number two, give God room to work in a way that I never could. Uh, just curious, how many of you uh, have ever dialed 911? A, a few of us. Uh, I have almost dialed 911 two times. Uh, once when I was robbed at 2 a.m. in White Center, which is why I've never gone back, and, and then once when uh, Haley thought her appendix was rupturing, which is a really funny story that I'm not allowed to tell. In, in, in both times, I, I hesitated because dialing 911 is, is a big deal, right? It was started back in 1957, proposed by the National Association of Fire Chiefs. 
It was meant for real emergencies. It's a serious thing to call the number. And, and yet, you, you may have heard this story a, a few years ago about the woman in, in Florida who was arrested for repeatedly calling 911 because McDonald's had run out of chicken McNuggets. I was interested in this story, and so I went on to YouTube and I typed in funny 911 calls. Wow. There went the rest of my workday. Sorry, Ben. <laughs> I, I, I listened to uh, story after story. There was the 7-Eleven employee who called 911 because he was experiencing a brain freeze from sucking directly from the slurper machine. <laughs> I, I listened to a 911 attendant walk a farmer f- through mouth-to-snout resuscitation. It was exciting. And really, aside from the few crazy calls that they get each day, they're able to help hundreds of thousands of people every single day. When you dial 911, you're saying, I need help. There may be some of us here this weekend, and and, and we're deliberating. We've got the phone out. And and we would say, you know what, there's no emergency right now in my life, but if I was honest with myself, I would say that I don't have it all handled. I could use some help. Romans 12, 19 says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. One of the best things that you can do is ask for help. From other people, yes, But there's also something powerful that happens when we choose to let God in. When when we give God room to work in our hearts, when we give God room to work in a situation. And then number three, I invest in the future and close the loop. I invest in the future and close the loop. Romans 12, 20, Paul continues. He says, on the contrary, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, this part of Romans 12, it doesn't originate with Paul. Paul is quoting Solomon. Solomon wrote several books, and and, and this is a direct quote from Proverbs chapter 25. Now, Solomon is David's son. Where did Solomon learn the truth that he wrote in Proverbs 25? Perhaps from his father. Maybe even listening to his dad tell stories about his grandpa. Your grandpa is crazy, but I didn't kill him. Good night, son. David decided to be known by forgiveness and mercy, and it was passed on to his son who saw the way his father lived and let it shape the way he lived as well. I've said this before, but success in life is that those who know you the best would respect you the most. Now, often this isn't the case. Often those who know us the best respect us the least but you can choose to change that. When you resist payback, what you're doing, you're you're investing in the future, and instead of continuing the cycle, you're closing the loop. And then number four, I become more like Jesus. What if the great thing to do is not to get justice when someone deserves it, but to give forgiveness 
when they don't. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. And, and, and often, it's, it's the, the moment that we're able to extend grace to others is the moment that we choose to receive the grace that Jesus freely extends to us. It's not in your notes, but Jesus said in John 13, 35, this is how you'll know that people are my disciples. He, he said it's, it's, it's not how they dress, it's not whether they're able to, to sound spiritual or theologically eloquent when they speak. It's not how dusty or marked up their Bibles are. It's not how they spend their weekends, although some of that's important. Jesus said the way you'll know that, that they're my disciples is by how they love each other. Romans 12, 21 says it like this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In 1994, there was a, a genocide in Rwanda. Almost a million people were systematically uh, and brutally murdered. Now, the issue was once this was, was, was con- concluded, there was, there was thousands and thousands of people who had perpetuated the violence. And so the court system was overwhelmed with what to do with this. Now, two decades later, Many of the perpetrators are, are now being released from prison and, and trying to figure out how to re-engage in society. And, and so they're trying to, to figure out a way for reconciliation. And, and last year, uh, Peter Hugo, a, a photographer, went to southern Rwanda and captured a series of unlikely and almost unthinkable tableaus. The people who agreed to be photographed are part of a continuing national effort towards reconciliation and worked closely with AMI, a nonprofit organization. In this program, small groups of Hutus and Tutsis are counseled over many months, culminating in the perpetrator's formal request for forgiveness. In interviews conducted by AMI and Creative Court for the project, the subject spoke of the pardoning process as an important step towards improving their lives. These people can't go anywhere else. They have to make peace, Hugo explained. Forgiveness is not born out of some airy-fairy sense of benevolence. It's more out of a survival instinct. Yet the practical necessity of reconciliation does not detract from the emotional strength required of these Rwandans to forge it or to be photographed, for that matter, side by side. Here are some of those pictures. He murdered her children. He wrote this. When I was still in jail, President Kagame stated that the prisoners who would plead guilty and ask pardon would be released. I was among the first ones to do this. Once I was outside, it was also necessary to ask pardon to the victim. She could never have known that I was involved in the killings of her children, but I told her what happened. When she granted me pardon, all the things in my heart that had made her look at me like a wicked man faded away. She said this, many among us had experienced the evils of war many times. And I was asking myself what I was created for. The internal voice used to tell me, it's not fair to avenge your beloved one. It took time, but in the end, we realized that we are all Rwandans. The genocide was due to bad governance 
that set neighbors and brothers and sisters against one another. Now you accept and you forgive. The person you have forgiven becomes a good neighbor. One feels peaceful and thinks well of the future. There's another photograph. He writes, The day I thought of asking pardon, I felt unburdened and relieved. I had lost my humanity because of the crime I committed. But now I am like any human being. She said, After I was chased from my village and Dominique and others looted it, I became homeless and insane. Later, when he asked my pardon, I said, I have nothing to feed my children. Are you going to help me raise my children? Are you going to build a house for them? The next week, Dominique came with some survivors and former prisoners who perpetrated genocide. There were more than 50 of them, and they built my family a house. Ever since then, I've started to feel better. I was like a dry stick. Now I feel peaceful in my heart, and I share this peace with my neighbors. They're trying to figure out, without minimizing the hurt or the damage, how do they move forward? Hebrews 4.15, speaking of Jesus, it says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Today, there is, there is hope for you. As one who has been hurt or, or, or maybe even as one who, who has hurt others, maybe not even purposefully, but, but there's been some collateral damage caused by your action or inaction. This week, you will have an opportunity for payback. And it may be small and it may be subtle and you may not even recognize it at the time. To, to, to say something, to do something, to, to give a look, to make a comment. And you'll have to make a choice. And what you choose matters more than you'll ever realize. Often there's a gap between a wound and, and, and the eventual complete healing. And how we navigate that gap is so important. And God says, you don't have to navigate it alone. That you can find grace to help you in your time of need. You may be here this weekend and and you'd say, you know what, Shane, I'm just too far down that path. What God would want you to know this weekend is that regardless of what you've done, or what's been done to you. It may mark you, but it doesn't have to define you. There is a real difference that Jesus can make in and through your life if you'll choose to let him. Would you pray with me?